I look at a lot of the metaverse land right now, and there's a pretty significant bifurcation, in my opinion, of land that should accrue value directly proportional to the success of the project. And there are lands that don't really see direct beneficial responses. In that sense, you know, I look at that bifurcation and I see projects that I think are overvalued inherently because that whole space as a sector kind of traded one beta in the positive direction. And it kind of got spurred by Facebook's rebranding to Meta. And I think that set unrealistic expectations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising, with host Sabretooth, a professional NFT collector, and Kizu, a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. So, if you are a creator or a collector of NFTs, jump in. The water is warm. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Floor is Rising. With us today is special guest Sasha Fleischmann, aka Arca Chemist on Twitter. He's a portfolio manager at Arca, which is one of the I guess the biggest brand names in crypto funds. Um, welcome to the show, Sasha. Tell us, how did you get into NFTs and how did you become the portfolio slash fund manager at Arca? I joined Arca in 2018, you know, a little bit before NFTs became mainstream. One of the sectors that I was tasked with was the gaming sector. You know, we found Axie Infinity rather early on while they're doing their, their seed round for their token. I beta tested the product along with a few other people on the team and being, <laughs> I don't want to call it a career gamer. I've never made a career out of it, but you know, being someone who games frequently, there's a, just a natural understanding for, you know, the PMF that they were looking for and, you know, the gap that they were filling from previous games. You know, I, I grew up playing Diablo and CSGO and RuneScape and, and, and games like that. There was already, you know, second stage marketplaces, whether it was Steam Marketplace or just PayPal on like Blizzard forums, you know, and it was a natural thing where you understood that if you've played games long enough, there is a non-zero value attributed to the assets within the game. So I thought the game was interesting. I thought that the mechanics were nice. I liked how it kind of blended together the user and the investor. And, you know, we ended up investing into the seed round. I also ended up acquiring some of the NFTs directly in the game. And I believe that was late 2019. And from there, you know, I kind of called that my Trojan horse. The next thing I remember doing is uh, hearing about hash masks when they were minting in, I think, January of 2020, like right at the precipice of COVID. And 2021. Okay, so it was the year after. But I remember remember minting those assets. And it was a very interesting mechanic because of the, instead of like a Dutch auction, it was more of like a FOMO curve ramp where like the first thousand was at 0.01, then a 0.03, or maybe it was 0.1, 0.3. And then by the end, the last few were like a thousand ETH each. And, you know, I found that mechanic very interesting. And from there, you know, that that's more of the collectible side, had nothing to do with gaming. And then I kind of splintered off and started doing a whole bunch of other things. The space itself has grown such that, you know, most of the things that people got into in the years between 2019 and call it like May or April of 2021, most of them have done rather well, right? Or at least on aggregate, you've done rather well. So as the space grew, as, as attention kind of honed itself in on this sector, I kind of made the pitch to, to the team internally that this is a strategy that we can run on an institutional level. And, you know, it took, it took six to nine months of, you know, DD and, you know, background information and marketing and, you know, then pitching the idea. And finally we put it together and, 
launched a fund to get you know fundamental based exposure to the non fungible space. What is the difference between you know an individual buying NFTs versus the way like for example that Arca would view? Buying into NFTs is it institutions are mostly looking at sort of non-secondary sales, more like primary market or even you know pre-primary market, or what would be the difference? I guess at the approach that that an institution is looking at NFTs. Yeah, I mean it's a great question. I, I could tell you that I, I don't think the way that we do it is necessarily the way that other funds that tackle this space do it. So my perspective may not be the standard, but we don't really find it necessary to only get into stuff at early stage levels. Like I, I kind of look at the NFT space as a hybrid of, you know, VC and liquid investing, right? VC in the sense that you're going to have a lot of winners and a lot of losers and it's going to be, you know, it, it's just going to be what it is, right? There's a lot of volatile moves in the space and, you know, you can only act on the information you have and sometimes that's not that much. So there is a lot of um, big swings that happen in the space. But I will say that in terms of the liquid market, like there is no lockup, there is no nothing holding you back from selling the asset other than finding another buyer. So it's not necessarily trade by appointment, but it's not necessarily, you know, you can leave it whenever you want. You know, the derivatives market still hasn't fully come to fruition yet. So there's not like a liquid representation to hedge it out. So it's kind of in the middle there, but the way that we look at it, you know, it doesn't have to be a mint or a private deal while we do look at both of those, you know, I'm just as likely to pitch an idea of buying it off secondary. What we look for is attributable fundamental value and the way that I boil that down to is if the underlying project is succeeding and let's say their KPIs are growing, you know, that their all their metrics are climbing higher, how does that affect the non-fungible assets within that portfolio? And if there is a direct relationship to the success of the project and the success of the asset itself, then I can start attributing fundamental value. You know, sometimes it's hard, right? <laughs> Calling yourselves a fundamental investor in the NFT space is some would say it's an oxymoron. I, I disagree, but it's definitely more difficult. But that's, you know, this is a new space. And I think that, you know, we're not the only fund that popped up. There's been quite a few. And I think that this is still pretty early days. And it's a natural order of things that the more institutional money that starts to enter the space, it kind of has an effect on how the assets within that space have to act. I think that there's going to be a shift in how these assets will start to look and how they'll be pitched and how they'll be structured. And I think it'll be somewhere meeting in the middle where, you know, there, there's some things that a fund manager has to concede, you know, we're playing in a different arena and there's some things that the new arena has to concede because there's a lot of money on the sidelines just waiting to find something that, you know, catches their attention. If you look at the NFT gaming sector, the project CryptoKitties basically put NFTs on the map. It wasn't really CryptoPunks. When CryptoPunks launched, it wasn't really that hyped. But when CryptoKitties launched, it kind of broke Ethereum and it was kind of the first you know, major NFT game. It kind of was super hyped. Basically, all the OGs in the NFT space basically played CryptoKitties when it came out. And then, you know, even following that for a few years, it was kind of CryptoKitties and, and Gods Unchained as kind of the two sort of major NFT gaming projects, essentially. But I would say, I mean, those two projects are, I mean, especially CryptoKitties definitely has kind of fallen by the wayside. And these days, I would say, the majority of the NFT gaming sector is essentially Axie Infinity clones or like pay to earn. Like, do you think that this is kind of uh, something fundamental about the structure of these projects that, you know, CryptoKitties and to some extent Gods Unchained have essentially not really, you know, taken off as NFTs taken off and it's kind of been Axie Infinity or do you think it's like luck or how do you explain, I guess, 
you know, the direction that the NFT gaming sort of sector has gone down. Yeah, I think that in most burgeoning sectors, you see projects come out, you know, first mover advantage that were just too early for their time. And not to say that, you know, CryptoKitties would be a smash hit today, although, you know, it, it's kind of hard to write that off, but the space wasn't really thinking that way, right? You, you have to consider the setup that NFT gaming had at the time, right? Axie Infinity has been around since I believe November or December, 2018, right? It wasn't like it just burst onto the scene randomly, but the way, the reason it feels like that is because there's a combination of coronavirus becoming a big thing, which, you know, kept everybody indoors. And it also, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people lost their jobs. So it freed up a lot of free time. And two, there was a strong demand for collectible value. You know, the, the, the growth of collectibles was not just in the NFT space, you know, physical collectibles, Pokemon cards, uh, sports cards, sneaker heads, like that all rapidly increased right around the time that COVID started because you gave a lot of people time and it's kind of an oxymoron, but money, because a lot of people that would normally, you know, go out to bars or go on vacation or, you know, maybe buy a new home, like everything got paused, everything. And you have to kind of have a natural desire to test these things because a lot of these games are very, I don't want to call it rudimentary, but not, you know, it's not apples to apples when you're comparing an Axie or another game of that stature to like Elden Ring that just came out, right? Like it's just a different, like if you're looking for graphics experience, that's way ahead. What, what you're looking for in digital assets-based gaming is a proof of concept. And I think CryptoKitties was a proof of concept in the sense that there was demand for this style of system. And I think it kind of just boils down to like RNG-based uh, pseudo gambling. Um, but Axie and, and, and the new games that came out took it further where, you know, it was a low complexity auto battler, right? Where you pick the cards and it's almost like a Hearthstone or Magic the Gathering or, you know, a, a game like that. You still have some, you know, skill-based involvement, but it's also a pretty hands-off game. And not everybody likes that type of gaming, right? There's people that play shooter games, people that exclusively play sports games. There are people that like auto battlers, you know, uh, team fight tactics in under Riot's uh, League of Legends game is a massive game. And at the same time, they also released Valorant, which is also a massive game and that's more of a shooter. So there are types of gamers. And I think right now only one type of gamer is being serviced. And so people are having a hard time kind of comparing the two and then uh, maybe we can get into this later but there's also a natural apathy of traditional gamers for this space right now and that's an educational hurdle that may take some time there seems to be not just apathy but sort of active hostility <laughs> from a lot of sort of non-nft gamers for example i think when discord announced that they were going to do some sort of wallet like there was a huge sort of backlash and do you think, I guess, the onboarding into sort of NFT gaming or Web3 gaming will be from the Web2 gamers? Like it, that will be kind of the onboard or it'll be something different? And, and do you think, you know, people who enjoy sort of Web2 gaming will directly onboard into Web3 gaming? Kind of like the, it's like Web2, but with like a financial advantage or with like some sort of like extra bonus. Do you think that will actually be the, the path? Or? So there's two things that traditional gamers have working against them in this space. One is that they have been playing games, most of them for a long time, and they miss this, right? And right. given that the value of everything has gone up so much, there's a natural feeling of apathy where like you were, you know, directionally correct, but still missed on 
one of the swiftest and largest bull runs we've ever seen. And so there's, there's going to be some some annoyance in that factor. There's also been a lot of, you know, misdirection in terms of education on what digital assets are, you know, the environmental impacts, the people think that there's pay to win mechanics, you know, so people don't like NFTs in that sense where they're looking at Axie and saying, oh, I can just buy, you know, a $2 million Axie and then just win every game, right? Or in Zed Run, I can buy the best horse and then just auto win every game. And I think... To, to your earlier point, I think that NFT gaming will take a big step once Web2 gamers come on board. And I think the way that it looks, and I'll just use League of Legends as an example because it's you know an easy one to, to look at, is that in League of Legends, there is no like competitive advantage game to game, right? Each game starts over fresh. The only assets you really own in that game are like in-game cosmetics. It's like uh, champion skins or, you know, ward skins or flares or this or that. It's all like fluff it's not anything that gives you like attack speed or damage or stuff like that and what i think happens is someone like a riot game says hey like we're not building league of legends on chain but what we are doing is giving you a one-to-one digital representation of your in-game assets that can be transferable and imagine what happens when all these you know web2 gamers that have been (laughs) verbally unhappy with with the with the happenings in this space all of a sudden are grandfathered into this asset class with, you know, five, six figures of assets. You can hate it all you want, but the second that you start liquidating those assets because you hate it so much and all of a sudden that real money is coming into your account, you start to understand what happens here, right? What what you're doing, this is a good thing for gamers. This gives value to gamers that is currently being taken away. The prop for traditional games is that you sell these cosmetics and it's primary revenue and that's it. It's non-transferable. So if someone else wants it, they have to buy it on their own. What games don't want to do is they don't want to open this up to secondary trading because they lose their control on the primary sales. But what they're missing and what most people see in this space is that the secondary sale royalty revenue stream is much, much bigger than whatever primary sale you could you could get a hold of. So I think this is great for the game. I also think this is great for the players. And, and it kind of delineates the gap. If I'm the first player of League of Legends when it came out, I think like 20. 13, I, I, I'm making up a number, but it was a long time ago. And I've been playing this game and evangelizing this game and telling all my friends to download it. I had a non-zero impact on the success of that game. And not that that person deserves to benefit from the growth of the game, but I think it's in- inherently a good thing as opposed to them not getting any benefit out of being an early adopter. And I think that's what people are going to start realizing. And Everyone's looking at this space and saying, well, there is no game I can play today. So it's all, you know, it's all fake. It's not real. And it's just like a gimmick. And in reality, you know, 95% of games that get launched in the traditional space don't make it to production stage, right? They, they raise their funding and they find out that it either costs too much, they don't have the right people, it's taking too long, or they didn't acquire enough users to make it cash flow positive. So this space is way different because when you raise money in this space, you can raise money through the direct sale of the assets in game. And now your investor base are the people playing your game who have a direct interest in seeing your game succeed. And it kind of just like brings it all together. And I think that people are just too quick to write off this space. It's just way too early. We're, we're really two years into it. You know, I'd really love to see where we are in another like three to five years from now. And I think it's going to be two to three orders of magnitude bigger in terms of daily active users and, and metrics. I mean, there's 3 billion gamers in the world. There's, you know, that, that's, a, that's a big number. It's a really big number. If I look at sort of Axie Infinity, right? 
the difference between what makes it like a Ponzi versus what makes it not a Ponzi is that at some stage, some gamer has to enjoy playing it just for kind of its own sake, right? Not as a PVP kind of situation uh, or like a continuous sort of inflation situation. And, and one of the games that I think has onboarded probably the most people into crypto is, is basically poker, right? Which is kind of the ultimate sort of PVP game. And in even if you look at poker, that itself, a ton of gamers onboarded into poker back, you know, in the days when sort of poker first came onto the scene from, you know, online poker first came on the scene, a huge number of kind of professional StarCraft or Magic the Gathering players basically went into poker because it was more lucrative. So I see that as kind of like a direct corollary in terms of what people hope that NFT gaming will, right? Like the sort of the Web2 game is coming to Web2 because it's more financially lucrative. But then poker is kind of like a, basically a, the ultimate sort of PVP, right? People are not really playing it, you know, for the graphics or anything, but but because of kind of its, its strategic PVP sort of challenge, do you see that as kind of being the core value of essentially NFT gaming, kind of that, that enhanced PVP sort of poker-like, I, I guess, mechanic? Gaming came out of left field and just went through like a 600x multiple in like a year. And that was unsustainable to begin with, right? Like Q3 of last year was unsustainable. That was the epitome of, <laughs> you know, like the, the dot-com bubble where like it didn't exist and all of a sudden it existed and everybody wanted to do it. And all of a sudden you had 500 games that wouldn't even make it on the floor of a casino, right? Like a slot machine. Like, like there was just like really low effort games being put out. And it was just, like you said, financially motivated. But what happens and what will happen, and I'm rather confident in this, is that the games that build IP, right? Cultural IP and actual IP will survive and will thrive. Because right now it's a, whether we're going to call it rising tide lifts all boats or, you know, like you're, you're you're kind of being subsidized by the game itself. What eventually happens is that there's a free-to-play mode where you don't earn any tokens, but you still get to play the game. And there's also, you know, esports organizations that pop up. So while you can't play the game anymore and, you know, make a salary on a personal level, if you're good enough at, at the game itself, you can join a professional organization that competitively battles for a purse. And this is the same, you know, this is the same method that League went down. You know, I, I play League for... A hobby, right? I don't make any money playing league. I probably lose money. I definitely lose time. But the LCS is one of the biggest esports organizations and tournaments in the world. There's multi-million dollar, you know, orgs in there. You have a hundred thieves. You have, you know, Cloud9, TSM. These are all massive, massive organizations that pull in a lot of advertisement capital. That pull in a lot of, you know, partnerships. And I'm pretty sure uh, one of them is, I think it's TSM is partnered with FTX. So you know, like. <laughs> there's kind of a ballooning of of how the value gets gets drawn out and what people have to understand is that Ax, like people like to hone in on axie right it's the definitely at the forefront of conversations the battling system and you know origin is about to drop next week like these are beta use cases of the game right the real game happens when land play goes live and this just becomes like an like an interface on the game like when you play pokemon if the entire game of pokemon was just you fighting another Pokemon, like nobody's going to play that for, you know, eight hours a day, seven days a week. But Pokemon became a massive IP conglomerate because the battle system was just a small piece of the actual culture, right? There was a TV show. 
you know, there are movies. The League of Legends has a TV show on Netflix. I think it was rated one of the highest shows that Netflix has ever created on an original standpoint. Like that is like the power of, of the IP, but it takes years for that to build out. You need to create lore. You need to create backstories. You need to, you know, kind of let it soak through. And everyone's focused on how much money you can make right now. And I think that's just missing the forest for the trees about what's actually happening in this space and what will happen. Because I think, I think the Pandora's box has already been opened on owning the assets within games, just giving sweat equity and converting it to actual equity within a, a game. You cannot take that back. Once it's gone, it's gone. And, and, and we, we opened it. So it's going to happen now. And it's a matter of how it happens. And I, I'm just fundamentally bullish on how that plays out. It's just a time factor. And I don't think anyone knows how long it'll take on a time scale. Could you walk us through a little bit about how you go about assessing whether a project or a game has a solid IP? Is there a more speculative kind of set of criteria that you also have in addition to something that you can look at in concrete terms in the here and now? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think it's definitely a case-by-case basis. I think you're on the nose that you know there are some things that are observable upfront. And there are some things that you have to speculate on in terms of growth factors and paths to success. You almost have to run scenario analysis on, on every investment that you make in the space because there is a path where all of these fail, right? The, the, none of them are set in stone as like massive, massive, you know, too big to fail projects. They're all rather early stage. They're all, you know, rather new in terms of like, you know, the use cases. This is all like bleeding edge stuff. So, you know, it's tough because like we invest in in many sectors within this space, but Gaming is a bit more tactile, right? If there's a an alpha or beta, definitely try to get hands on that and, and and see if the game itself is repeatable and viable. Definitely try to reach out to the team and you know you know ask questions directly. <laughs> I'm not I'm I'm not uh, above reading white papers. I still I still go through the docs and make sure everything is uh, checks out. And 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 like I said earlier, it's it's it really all boils down to whether or not the non fungible assets are directly correlated to the underlying project because the worst thing that can happen right is that the project is a smash hit everything's killer and they make out like bandits but the assets underneath either don't accrue value or lose value because they were not tied into the success rate of the ecosystem and i I think a great example of that and it's been a very public example is nba top shots right that caught the world by storm and (laughs) it was a massive zero to one movement but you know, there was some negative responses when all of a sudden there was no follow on utility for the assets. There was no real, I know since then they have, you know, tried to reignite the candle, but it's really hard to do so in my opinion, but there was no like direct path to where those NBA top shots would be an integral part of that ecosystem. There was a walk back where it was like, Oh, these are just collectibles. So we try to stay away from things that are just collectibles. And in that sense, like it's not that those can't accrue value. NFT art is one of the biggest sectors in this space by a wide margin. It's just that for someone like us, it we don't think that we have any edge, right? If someone wants to go buy a Fidenza, they don't need Arca to facilitate that. They can go and buy that themselves, right? What we're trying to do is find things that people haven't heard of or find things that people aren't looking at the right way and try to find assets within that ecosystem that would benefit from a thesis that we have about that project succeeding. So I'm curious, like how your analysis and and DD process, how has that changed over the past, say, three to six months? And do you think that is connected to the market conditions? Or would you say that actually you have 
a set of fairly market neutral kind of strategies that you know come come hell or high water that you deploy at Arca. Yeah, I mean that's a it's a tough question considering we went effective uh, Gen one of this year, so we're only three months old as a fund. Not much of a change thus far, given the the lack of time. I would say that you know we our DD process and our you know analysis is pretty fund agnostic, and so we brought over the same type of rubric as we've had in other funds. And obviously, you know, as time goes on, there will be some you know, tweaks and specifications that are unique to this space. You know, some things that don't matter in this space that matter in the other sectors, some things that do matter here that don't matter there. But that is a definitely a work in progress. And you, you learn more as you as you do more. We've analyzed in, in these last three months close to 100 projects. And and <laughs> I, I can promise you that, you know, as we keep doing it, we will keep shoring up the the questions that are repeated. You know, maybe we'll see mistakes that happen that we can check for next time. You know, it's it's a moving target because every time you think you have it down, the space iterates and there's different metrics and different drivers and you have to start all over. In terms of investments, I can't call it a market neutral fund. Obviously, we are long beta in the NFT space, but the hope is that the investments that we're making, since they are fundamental based, the downside shouldn't necessarily be zero, right? There's still massive volatility swings in this space, but the difference between investing in you know a, a new mint of you know something random that we think other people might like versus looking at numbers and projecting numbers to show value is that we have you know KPIs that have things to watch out for right i can i can see if something's being successful based on the thesis that i have or if it's failing on the thesis that i have and it's not necessarily price based although you know price definitely gives some bias but i don't consider my assets to have 100% downside because things that we put in the book have some sort of fundamental floor value. One of the things that you sort of mentioned earlier and also that came back to now is that you talked about sort of projects, you know, being structured differently to kind of work with funds or or projects, you know, maybe not structured ideally to work with funds. Can you kind of talk more about that in terms of like what kind of structures for NFT projects that you're seeing sort of are optimized for for working with funds and versus not kind of for the for the founders out there? Yeah, I think a lot of it is just information based. You know, we're we're not asking to get special treatment because we are a fund, but there's a lot of times where I don't even know what I'm looking at because the information is so sparse that I have to piecemeal it together. So I think having either like a landing page or like a git book or, or some sort of explainer as to what the assets actually are and what they do within the ecosystem. Like the more information, the better. And that's why, you know, sometimes I try to reach out because it's like, I think I know what it is, but like, I have no way of being sure. And that ambiguity makes it rather difficult to, to build the thesis around because there are so many variables and, and things are subject to change, but it's, it's all information based. The more public information that's out there, the more that we can make decisions, the more that everybody else can make decisions. And right now it's a lot of, you know, wait and see question marks and it just makes it tough on our end to evaluate. And and that's not, you know, it's not necessarily a fault of theirs. You know, maybe they, they haven't fully, you know, flushed out exactly what they want yet. And maybe it means that, you know, we don't touch it now, but in two years, once it's more flushed out, we take another look at it. And that's more than fine. But, you know, investments that we've made to date either have really good communication with the team or really good information being put out there where I can work with my team and make sure that we fully understand what we're actually getting into. Is it within the purview of the fund to to invest in sort of PFP projects? Because you talked about like 
for example, you know, metrics and, and that kind of stuff. Like how would you even view sort of like a PFP project from, from a metric standpoint or, or is, does that not really apply in this case? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, it's a question I'm tackling myself. It's within mandate undoubtedly to gain exposure in that space. I don't think I'm going to miss the boat if I watch it for a bit longer and, you know, get some more data points as to how things work. You know, Azuki is a great example of another data point that I can, you know, glean upon of a success story. There's also been a few, you know, not so successful stories that I've been able to grab some, you know, historical data from. And that's that's not so much, you know, sale volume or like what you consider like traditional metrics, but it's watching how the ecosystem progresses and how the timeline of a successful project versus an unsuccessful project looks. There are some, you know, similarities and there are some correlations. You know, I'm taking it slow there. And as a fund, we're taking it slow there. But it's something, you know, it's it's part of this space. I can't just ignore it. So we are watching it. We're waiting until we find something that we feel like we can either offer value to or have an edge to, you know, extract value. Would you say, in place of that, would you say that there are certain categories of products and games that as a whole, obviously they're very different individually, but as a whole, would you say that there are things that are either, in your opinion, overvalued or undervalued as a category? I can speak to that. I, I think that this is all, you know, some of these are short-term, some of these are long-term, but, you know, I, I look at a lot of the metaverse land right now, and there's a pretty significant bifurcation, in my opinion, of land that should accrue value directly proportional to the success of the project. And there are there are lands that don't really see direct beneficial responses. In that sense, you know, I look at that bifurcation and I see projects that I think are overvalued inherently because that whole space as a sector kind of traded one beta in the in the positive direction, you know, and it kind of got spurred by, you know, Facebook's rebranding to Meta. And and I think that set unrealistic expectations. On the flip side, I think that the AI NFT space is very, very undervalued. I think it's, again, really early days there, but that is a great, great test bed for the value prop that non-fungible assets can provide. And I'm, I'm very keen on the developments in that sector, and I've been watching it you know, <laughs> very thoroughly. <laughs> so you know, th- those are, I guess, one example from each side of, of what I'm looking at. Those have different time horizons. I think land, metaverse land in aggregate and the long term will be valued much higher than it is today. And I think that, you know, the AI sector will take a decent amount of time to fully start to catch PMF. You know, AI in general is rather slow in terms of adoption. So like, I I think that every question has to be baked in with like a timing parameter. And those things are still things that we are figuring out. But that's where my mind has been going to pretty consistently over the last few months. Could you say a little bit more about the the latter, the AI um, aspect of things? I look at a lot of things through the gaming lens. And a good example for anyone listening or anyone that you know communicates with us later, if, if you've ever played, you know, any Elder Scrolls games, have you if you've ever played D and D, you know, you you are accustomed to attribute systems, right? You have intelligence, you have charisma, wisdom, you know, what strength, dexterity, you know, you have stats. And those stats are, you know, they're, they're pretty locked in to whatever game or ecosystem you're involved with. AI is, it's not so, it's not like the, you know, the TV show concept where, you know, an intelligent AI takes over like the missile launch codes and, and, you know, all of a sudden you're in a post-apocalyptic world. 
Um, I think I think it's going to start a lot more rudimentary where, you know, you have these developing data sets that can be plugged into games and you have a personality, right? Let's say you name one Kizu and you you min-max Kizu to be very smart and maybe not a lot of charisma, right? And you put them in, in one game and maybe it's a strategy game and that AI excels at that game and it learns and it evolves. And you put that into a virtual dating app game and he's probably not doing too great, right? And, and that is an asset that can be trained. It can be developed. You can, you can push skill trees and you can also, you know, create, you know, offspring in some of these and you can start to lease out those assets where all of a sudden there's a new racing game that's taking off that needs like, you know, AI personality drivers. And you have a brain that's very, very fine tuned to be, you know, a quick thinking brain with heavy motor skills. And that brain will probably do very well in, in a in a function of this nature. I mean, Sasha, you're, you're you're trying really hard not to not to name the project Altered State Machine, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm very I'm very interested in that project. And for you know, for the record, you know, in full disclosure, we are invested in the ASM brains in the fund. The reason I don't like naming names is because I don't feel confident enough yet to name names because I am still learning along with everybody else. I'm still pulling in this information. I'm still watching how things go. We're as a space very new to this sector. And so I don't like making overarching, you know, sweeps of clarifications that this is going to happen. This will happen and you have to, you know, get on board or you're going to miss out. Like these are still subject to change and I'm still watching, but these are things that do excite me. And I and I do see a scenario where these play out. That's honestly kind of how you have to look at the space. That's where the blend of VC and liquid markets come in. Like they're are a lot of grand ideas right now. And it's about assigning probability to how likely you think those ideas are actually going to be able to go from start to finish. I'm sort of more interested in um, in hearing your bifurcation on the on the different metaverse lens because you, you you mentioned that essentially the whole sector has been treated like the same, right? Virtual lands, everything goes up. Facebook changes their name to meta, everything goes up. But you kind of mentioned that <clears throat> that that you think that there there are some sort of metaverse land projects where value accrues to the NFT assets and there are some that don't. Are you open to mentioning names on, on either one of those two sides? <laughs> I can mention a name on the side where I think value accrues. Okay. Uh, just because we've been public about that. We, we do have an investment in Axie Infinity's Genesis land. Um, you know, I, I published a Twitter thread. It's all out there, um, our reasoning why. But I think that in that kind of economy, if the game is to succeed, then guilds will be basically in a land race to acquire the best assets for their constituents. And I can think of no better land from a proximity standpoint to, you know, Lunasia's landing from like a utility standpoint of the structures that could be built there. And I think that that type of land will be land owned by conglomerates as opposed to individuals. And it's an important distinction to make, right? Because at the time, you know, I paid through the fund. I think the per asset price was around $650,000. And you get to price points, right? Where you look at things and you decide, I think this is going to go up 10x. I think it's severely undervalued. Well, at 10x of that price, all of a sudden you're talking about, you know, $6 million. And, you know, what gamer is going to invest $6 million as an individual into a single asset, right? It's a very tough ask, unless if you're fully going down the financialization route. And I think in that sense, guilds that are 
you know, their whole business model is to acquire assets and then allow their, you know, constituents to benefit from the ownership of those assets. I think these types of land will gain instrumental value. I think on the other side, you know, I'm not, I'm not confident naming names yet because I could still be wrong, but there are projects out there that I don't see that kind of mechanism and that path to success. Who's your favorite NFT artists? What are the projects or games or things that, you know, you looked at initially and then maybe didn't really buy into it? I'll start by saying that Pop Wonder is my favorite NFT artist out there. I don't own any of his assets, but um, I just, I, I like the art in general and I like his vision and I find it very interesting. In terms of the gaming side, I mean, it, to me, it's still Axie and Alluvium. I still think that both of those games are games that I'm excited to play. I still don't consider what Axie has out there right now to be their full-fledged game. I think it's just a proof of concept. I And in, in the same, I think Alluvium Zero is, is coming closer to going live. You know, that'll be their proof of concept. But I'm excited for both games. I'm itching. I'm absolutely itching to go to my you know traditional gamer friends and say, you have to try this game. You know, it's just fun. You know, and oh, and as a sidebar, you know, it also has to do with NFTs, but it's fun and you'll like it and it'll be enjoyable because not everybody, like I said earlier, not everybody wants to play an auto battler, but when an auto battler is just a part of the overall compass, then there'll be things for everyone to do where they find enjoyment. In terms of a game where I was personally wrong on and, and you know, had to revisit, I think that, Parallel was something that I didn't fully understand. And I still don't think I do, but I'm, I'm getting there. Parallel is, is very interesting. I, I, I grew up playing a lot of trading card games. And from what I've been seeing, from what they've been posting, it looks very, very fun. And I'm excited to play that when it goes live. I think it's going to be the end of this year or early next year. Sasha, it's been great having you on the show. Um, I definitely learned a lot um, listening to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, guys. Take care. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floor is Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow. And give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us or send us a question. Just send us a DM at Floor is Rising.